Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 154. In this episode, we're introducing disability and theology with Professor John Swinton. Professor John Swinton is the Chair of Divinity and Religious Studies, Professor of Theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's a registered mental nurse and a registered nurse for people with learning disabilities. And he's also the author of a number of books, including Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, published by Erdman's. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Stephanie Kate Judd, Dr. Madison Pierce, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So with this episode, we are kicking off our series on disability and theology, and we are joined by Professor John Swinton, and it was wonderful to discuss a number of introductory matters, uh, methodologies, terminologies, these sorts of things, and just had a really lovely conversation with him. What were some of your takeaways of our conversation with Professor Swinton? I really appreciated uh, Professor Swinton sketching out sort of different models of di- within disability studies. So articulating for us what the medical model, what the medical model is, what the social model is, um, and sort of the shifts that have happened within disability theology um, and the impact that's had in terms of thinking about different themes. So I think that'll be a really useful primer for then um, the rest of the episodes we've got in this series. Yeah, I really appreciated uh, John's engagement with uh, disability and and theology, not just as that first tier, which is it often is, uh, but thinking then through what the consequences of it, of each engagement are as people within the church and and outside of the church, and um, actually think deeply and and respond deeply to the challenges uh, that are brought about to our culture our, our, our broad culture by disability uh, interaction with disability there uh, not just giving lip service to it but uh, thinking very deeply and engaged in, um, in that i really loved the way in which john helped us understand how um, disability theology equips us to realize that in our church communities or in our communities generally that um people with disability don't just present some sort of like pastoral care or um, ethical issue, but we should be thinking more in in the lens of discipleship, um, vocation, um, calling. And, and, you know, if if we take seriously um, that we cannot be the body of Christ without all of our differences and all of our diversities, that it causes us to pay attention to what are the gifts on offer to us um, by every single um, person within the body of Christ. And that's a real challenge. And I think it's one that we will continue to unpack for the rest of our lives. I really appreciate Professor Swinton's emphasis on belonging um, alongside inclusion and, um, you know, several points of of our conversation. And and as I've been thinking about disability and theology more, um, I have been thinking about how it intersects with various conversations on race and other um, ways that people are often marginalized. And so belonging was, you know, I had uh, Willie Jennings ringing in my ears. And so it's something I want to keep, keep thinking about. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Professor John Swinton. Well, Professor Swinton, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to talk. So we're really excited to do this series on disability and theology. And what we really want to do in this episode is provide some clarity on terminology and different methodological approaches to the study of disability and theology. Um, but we'd love to begin by hearing a little bit about your personal story and, and, your, and your background and what sort of led you uh, into this space. That's a good question. Well, my... Uh... My background is originally in, in nursing. So I, I nursed for 16 years, firstly in the area of psychiatry, mental health. Uh, and then I retrained and worked in the area of learning disabilities. So for most of my formative professional life, I was with people who perceived the world differently, people who were, I know, heard voices or were profoundly depressed or had the highs and lows of bipolar disorder. These people just, just saw and experienced the world differently. And then when I retrained and worked in the area of what was then called um, mental handicap, which is now called intellectual disability, uh, the same thing, you know, the same questions or same kinds of questions that begin to emerge from that kind of experience. So what does it mean to uh, understand the world when you don't have any uh, cognition or symbols to make sense of it? What does it mean to understand spirituality and religion in particular, when the kind of language that everybody else seems to use as a normal, you just don't have in that sense. Like, and ultimately, what does it mean to, to know God without words? So these, these kind of things you know, are very kind of challenging questions in a medical context, but they're more challenging than in a theological context. So when I moved into theology, the same sets of questions uh, moved in with me. And so I began to think about... Um, what do these things mean in a theological context? What does it mean for somebody to live with dementia, for example, um, to be losing their memory of God and ultimately perhaps to lose all memory of God and still to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to know Jesus when you, you don't know who Jesus is cognitively? So basically, when I came into uh, academia, that was the theological context that I brought with me in that sense. Because to some extent, all theology is autobiographical in the sense that you bring your own story, you bring your own experience, and you, you reflect on that uh, according to whatever theological framework you, you choose to do that. And that's certainly been the case for me, that everything I've done in relation to disability theology comes from that. So, John, I wonder if you could um, expand a bit more. Um, a lot of the time we hear of the, sort of the I guess, the, what, what is often known as a medical model of, of disability. Um, and and that's often contrasted then with the the social model of disability, um, and and even now m more recently um, we're seeing other you know broader models of of disability coming forward yeah. and thinking about the theological models etc. How how would you um, frame those in conversation with one another? Um, and what's a helpful yeah, that's, way of thinking that's a about great them? question. So one of the uh, challenging things for people who live with disabilities is the fact that people uh, kind of automatically frame it as a problem. 
And so you're in a wheelchair, so therefore you're a problem to be fixed or a problem to be solved or a problem to be rehabilitated. And it's not the normal way to think about disability, it's just another way of being in the world, another way of understanding uh, what it means to be a human being as you move through the world. So the idea of the medical model taps into the way in which many people within society think about disability, i.e. as a problem or as something that's wrong with somebody. And so within medicine, you know, uh, medicine exists to solve problems and to fix things that are, are broken. And so uh, within a medical perspective, the assumption is that whatever disability that you have is a problem that needs to be fixed or rehabilitated, which means that uh, people are oftentimes overlooked as people. They're simply looked upon as people to be fixed so that you can get as close to what I am and you are as possible. And that's a very difficult way to live your life, that people are always thinking that you're ill and always thinking that you need to be fixed. Um, and so the medical model works in the same way as medicine does. Something's wrong, you've got to fix it, and then you go back to normality. Um, but there's a different way of thinking about it. And that would be, first of all, that actually to live with a disability is just to uh, live in a different way. Like it's, it's not bad or good, it's just a different way of being in the world, which brings uh, pluses and brings minuses like always of being in the world do. Uh, the problem for many people with disabilities is not so much the thing that they they uh, are they are um, carrying in their bodies. It's the way that people perceive that. And so, if you're in a wheelchair, people may sympathise with you and think, oh, "Isn't that a shame? Isn't that a sad thing?" Which does nothing for your confidence and does nothing for your person. It does nothing for your sense of being a citizen in the world is valued. And so the way in which people treat one another actually causes somebody to be disabled in that sense, i.e. not to be able to participate well within society, within the parameters of what they can offer. Um, so the social model says, the problem's not with you. You're not the invalid person. The problem's with society. And if we change their views in society, then a lot of the uh, issues and challenges that people with disabilities uh, experience will simply disappear. So for example, um, uh, people very often talk about Down syndrome as a form of suffering. And you have to ask yourself, why? You know, if you spend time with people with disabilities, uh, then you, you know, with Down syndrome, you, you know that people have good lives, people can be funny and people can be loving and caring. Uh, the problem is that loving and caring and being funny isn't particularly valued within our society. What's valued is uh, intellect, reason, quickness of thought. And so therefore, when you see somebody who's not going through these culturally shaped uh, norms, you say, oh, there's something wrong with them. But there's nothing wrong with them. There's something wrong with society. And so the social model points to society and says, that's where the problem is, not within you. John, one of the interesting things you've just said about, uh, there is that uh, people are trying to then conform uh, disability and, and people's ability to and sort of an idealized society, I guess, uh, you know, yeah. um, intellect and, and ability and things like that. Um, one of the, the things that strikes me is that the pandemic has actually, for many people, highlighted the differently ableness of our society, how society yeah. is, is often set up um, in different ways. Have you been seeing that come come through in, the, in a theological space as well? Uh, for um, has, this, has this been reflecting in people's theological reflections uh, as as people have wrestled with the impact of the pandemic? Well, one of the things that the pandemic did positively in some senses was it, it helped us to see that the individualistic way that we live within society is just 
it's it's an it's a uh, it's simply doesn't exist. That we are all caught up in an intricate network of relationships globally and interpersonally, uh, and the idea that we are simply individuals who just do the best that we can for ourselves simply doesn't make sense. Now, I think I suspect we've lost that message now that the pandemics, <laughs> the fear and the anxiety of the pandemics pass away. But that's really really important because it indicates that we are the way that we look at society is actually flawed and that we kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we we are unique individuals and that, that the way to be a good citizen a good human being is to make sure that you're strong and tough and intellectually able and able to compete in the marketplace the pandemic pointed out very clearly that's really not the way it is that's the way it looks sometimes in, in good times but in reality it's not like that so I think one of the things that goes on within academia is it reflects that because disability theology really is, how could you put it, a, a prophetic um, a way of looking at the world that points to things in the world that seem to be normal, but actually are not normal. One of those being the idea that people who are dependent on other people are somehow inferior to people who are not dependent on other people. Whereas the pandemic tells us very clearly, nonsense. We are all dependent. And actually the doctrine of creation tells us, nonsense, we're all contingent, we're all dependent on God for everything. Now. And so the way that disability theology pushed that and the way that academic theology tends to push that is to remind us that we are maybe looking at the world in the wrong way and help us to see uh, uh, the world in the right way. And when we see that, then disability becomes something different. John, I think that one of the ways in which that um, is showcased most clearly is in the concept of personhood. And I know that you've done a bit of work on, um, on the ways in which um, disability theology can show up um, flaws in the way that we understand what it is to be a human, what it is to be a person. Could you please unpack that? Yeah, I mean, a, a good example would be the language that people use in relation to something like dementia. Right, so somebody has dementia, which means you obviously lose something of your recall memory, uh, and people then use a particular kind of language. So they'll say things like, uh, "He or she's not the person they used to be," or "I'd rather remember them the way that they were." Now, what does that mean? How could the person not be the person that she used to be? Because if that's true, then why would you love them? And why would you care for them? And who is it you're talking about anyway? Now, the problem there is that the way in which at least in Western uh, societies, the way in which we construct our understanding of personhood and understanding what a self is, is through memory. And so uh, as long as you're able to tell your story, to bring from the past into the present who you are and how you, where you've been and what you want from life, and then from there to project into the future about what you might want for the future, as long as you can do that, you're the person that you used to be. But as soon as you can't do that, you're not the person you used to be. Now, of course, when you think about it, and just to go back, you know, the, 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 the pandemic throws us up as well. We're always persons, we become who we are in relationship. Sometimes we think we become who we are as individual, but we become who we are in relationship. Take something very simple like value. How can you get value? The only way that you can get value is if somebody gifts it to you. How do you get friendship? The only way that you can get friendship is if somebody gifts it to you. So most of the central things like love, friendship, value, that make us the people that we are, 
come from our relationships with other people. So we're always persons in relationship. And so it's a bit of a fallacy to suggest that we are individuals out with relationship. Um, but you can see then the problem <laughs> for you or I or anybody if you get dementia, because we just don't think that way. This is an alien way of thinking about what we are as persons. Uh, whereas I think if you get that relational dynamic going, it's not only obvious, but it's actually transformative. Yeah, thank you. And I think that one of um, one of the interesting things um, that I, I've come across in, in your work has been the ways in which um, that notion of personhood has been understood by the church over time and how the Christian tradition has and made sense of the difference that you encounter in the human population. Yeah. Um, and and, and what, what you mentioned before about is it normal or abnormal or just different? Yes. Could you please unpack, kind of sketch for us how Christians over time have, what are some of the handholds for how Christians have understood um, these differences? It, well, I mean, Christians haven't been, uh, apart from creating very cognitive frameworks, but which tend to isolate people. So we, we don't have a fantastic track record. This is, I've spoken like a true reformed Presbyterian. Um, but if you take something like the body of Christ, right? So the body of Christ is a good example. So it's, it's a central uh, central theological concept. That, and the important thing being that the body of Christ is not a metaphor. When Paul talks about it, it's, it's intended to be a reality. What is it that marks out the body of Christ? What marks out the body of Christ is diversity, not homogeneity, not the fact that we're all the same. It's the fact that we're all different. And it's the fact that we can't all do the same things that makes the body of Christ the body of Christ. We can't all be the head, we can't all be the food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which means that we all have responsibilities towards one another within the body of Christ. Yeah, <clears throat> I can't do this, but you can do that. So we need to do these things together. Um, and so I think that uh, image, which I, I think is, is, a, is a constant within the Christian tradition, even if it's not always thought through in, in these specific terms, is profoundly important, partly because it creates a type of community that reflects Christ-like friendship and it reflects something of what the gospel is. And so internally, it's, it's, a, it's a good place for us to find ourselves. But externally, at least in, in principle, when people look at the body of Christ, they should see Jesus. So what you actually have is, is a manifestation of God in, the, in and through the body of Christ. So internally, you have a transformative understanding of what a human being is and what it means to be together as a community. But externally, you're looking at something and should be, and whether we do or not, saying, wow, that's pretty spectacular. Let's have a look at that. So the body of Christ is, is, is I think, is a very helpful way of, of um, thinking that through. And I think that's, as I say, it's a powerful uh, 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 image within Christian tradition. How does that connect with um, the ways in which um, persons with disability and particularly intellectual disabilities um, participate in the body of Christ when yeah. they may not be able to profess faith in the ways that um, certain forms of denominations That's would great. expect a prerequisite? Well, I, I, the way I, I was thinking about it is it, it transforms our understandings of what it means to participate. So particularly as those of us who come from the Reformed tradition, everything comes through works, right? So your salvation comes through works, the sermon comes through works, your knowledge of Jesus comes through works. 
So, which is why it's so difficult if somebody gets brain damage, that dementia or bang in the head or whatever it may be. Uh, but it seems to push into the very heart of, of what we are as Christians and the very heart of how we come to know uh, God. But that becomes problematic. However, when you begin to think about the experiences of people within the body of Christ who simply don't have that as a, as a starting position, um, then you have to ask the question, uh, does God then reject them? Not very unlikely, bearing in mind the nature of Jesus and the nature of God. And if God doesn't do that, then what does it mean for people to know God in, that, in this kind of situation? And there's, there's two pieces of scripture I'd, I'd, I'd go to to think about that. One is uh, Jeremiah 22, 16, where uh, Jeremiah is talking about King Josiah, who says he's a good king, right? Uh, why is he a good king? Because he looks after widows and orph orphans. And then the, then the author says, is that not what it means to know me? Right. So basically you have um, uh, a statement here that knowing God is a social practice. It's not simply knowing things about God. It's actually knowing God. When you when you do these things, when you integrate to these kinds of relationships, that is uh, how you come to know God. It's not like you know God and then do nice things. It's actually part of the same process. And James says the same thing. He, he talks about the devil or the demons rather who know more about God than you do. So go out and care for the widows in the office. So there's a difference between knowing God and knowing things about God. Because it means you and I know lots of people who know lots of things about God, but don't know God. And so knowing God has to do with um, engaging in social practices, but it also has to do with experiencing social practices, experiencing the practices of love within the community. Now the question is, do they have to be named? And I think, no, they don't have to be named. They seem to have to be experienced in that sense. They have to be, if, if it's true that knowing God is a social practice in that sense, then experiencing these things is a mode of knowing God. So it's within the body of Christ that we come to know God through those experiences of the practices of love that make the body of Christ the body of Christ. Thank you so much. I, um, I suspect I'm not going to be the only person who uh, sort of feels some sort of connection to this theme. And I was thinking about my... Um, grandma on my dad's side who passed away a couple of years ago who suffered with dementia for a long time and wrestling with a lot of these questions during that time and thinking about you know what does it mean for her to still be her and and how does she know God and um so it's uh yeah sort of finding this quite profound actually kind of um just reflecting on some of that at the moment um and something that really struck me uh sort of as she was coming towards the end of her life particularly was just the way that the church cared for her and this kind of extraordinary expression of love from that community and um, I think sort of picking up on what you just said in terms of uh, disability theology being a sort of prophetic uh, voice uh, for the church I, I might be slightly paraphrasing that but in terms of being able to show us the assumptions that we have um, and the kind of normal standards that we hold that you know perhaps need to be framing um, and you sort of given an example there in terms of you know what does it mean to know God actually not necessarily sort of professing that out loud um, I guess sort of practically, what do you think the church can be doing better to actually kind of hold that breadth of um, Christian experience within its ministry, um, rather than that kind of being something that we say, but perhaps people with uh, intellectual disabilities still effectively being sort of sidelined yeah. and, and marginalised within the church, but how does that actually kind of fold into church practice and expression? I mean, I think one of the problems for both academia and for the church is the frame that they place disability into. So 
um, you know, the temptation is if you have somebody with intellectual disability in your congregation, for example, is to think about that in terms of pastoral care or ethics. So pastoral care would be, how do we look after this individual with these particular needs? Nothing wrong with that, obviously. We all need pastoral care. Ethics might be the kind of questions we've been wrestling with, you know, how does it, we understand this person before God? So the problem with ethics is it becomes a person becomes a dilemma, and that's, nobody wants to be a dilemma. Um, but I think if you accept that ethics are important, accept that pastoral care is important, but realise that the key issue is discipleship, then everything changes. Because the question then is, how can this person uh, who's a disciple of Jesus Christ, who has a vocation and a calling, uh, be uh, enabled to fulfill their vocation and their calling within this place here? That's a much more interesting co uh, question, but it's a much more difficult question for, for, for a church to, to face. But I think that's the, that's the key question, because if you're really taking seriously what we've been talking about in relation to the body of Christ, experience of Jesus and all these things, they we're talking about a different kind of discipleship, but all discipleship has vocation and calling. The question is, what is that vocation and calling for, for that individual? And I think that's 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 the way to, if you like, reframe the way in which we we might respond to to human difference in our in our in our communities. Thank you, John. This has been a really helpful conversation for me so far, and I think I have a question along those same lines as Grace is. Um, you know, one of the ways that I've come into contact with a number of, of differences, uh, you know, among people is as a professor and yeah. trying to uh, provide structures and um, frameworks for my students who have various kinds of, of differences, especially learning differences. Yes. So I wonder if you could, I mean, this applies well beyond academia, but I wonder if you could help us to understand, you know, what are some of the ways that we can care for these people and, and not just in terms of, of our pastoral care, though, my goodness, that should be first and foremost, I think, in our mind. But how do we go beyond that and actually facilitate them and integrate them and, and begin to remove some of the barriers that come about through our problematic society? Well, my my Immediate response to that is it's, it's not that complicated to do that. The key is, is I think, friendship. Um, but it's a particular kind of friendship, right? So um, one of the most startling things that Jesus says, among many other startling things he says uh, in John's Gospel, is uh, when he talks to his disciples, he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, right? So friendship then becomes the nature of discipleship. But it's a very particular type of friendship that Jesus shows. Um, you know, think about it, the, the principle of the incarnation is a God who is radically unlike human beings, becomes a human being, and then offers friendship to human beings. And when you look at the friendships of Jesus, they're not like the friendships that we have very often within our, our own lives or within our own societies. So if you look at uh, the kind of circle of friends that you have or I have, or my Facebook page has, um, they're all more or less the same, in the sense that they have the same interests, the same the same uh, things that we like to do together. We otherwise we kind of have a, a basic a basic um, understanding of friendship is like attracts like, right? And it's a kind of social exchange. So if you give me the, the uh, appropriate social goods, then I'll be your friend. And I'll give you the same. But if you stop giving me these appropriate social goods and the, same, like, the types of relationship we have, then we won't be friends. 
So friendships is always fragile in that sense. And always, it's almost like Facebook where you just, I'm fed up with this guy, I'll unfriend you. Unfortunately, that tends to be the way that we function in real life as well, uh, which is probably why there's, there's such a breakdown in relationships across uh, our society. But the friendship with Jesus has something different. So first of all, they're always with, always with marginalised people, whether that be fishermen, whether that be uh, prostitutes, for that be tax collectors, whoever it is, it's people who have been rejected by society and put to one side. And bear in mind, it's, it's always, you know, tax collectors, prostitutes and sinners. It's not reformed tax collectors, prostitutes and sinners. It's people who are pushed away. So people who culturally, he shouldn't really, really not have been a part of that. Um, but he offers this friendship and he touches people and he engages with them and he shares in their alienation in that sense. And so the principle of the incarnation is, is, to, is to do with friendships based on grace. You simply are with people because you want to be with people, and particularly people who other people don't want to be with. I think that's the kind of friendship, that's the kind of discipleship that opens up real space for transformative relationships with people who, who live their lives, whose lives are different or who have different experiences of the world. Um, all of us have to do that. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm not saying that you, you, you just have to hard, work really hard so that you can be firm friends with a disabled person. I mean, we all have to do it. It's, it's not like it's, it's not a special ministry. It's just a way in which we should all be engaging uh, all the time in that sense. And I think if we took that way of being seriously, then a lot of these barriers, a lot of these difficulties would break down. So that's where I, that's, just, that's the relational space, I think, that uh, is the point for uh, engaging in precisely the ways that you're talking about. Thank you, John. If I can just follow up and, and maybe push a little bit, because I think that I, I love the idea that this is primarily relational, but um, I, I'm a structure person. No, no one's going to be surprised that I'm asking this question. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I personally think that structures and policies and things like that actually protect uh, the marginalized and the disenfranchised when they're crafted with these kinds of loving ideals in mind. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do we actually enact things that protect when these uh, more relational aspects of our care kind of break down does that no that's great no, that's great yeah yeah you, so the way i would think about it well the way I've, I've i've thought about it and written about it in the past is like this so there's a difference between inclusion inclusion and belonging right so inclusion is a legal term to some extent whereby you put laws in place and, and structures and policies in place that protect people, that make it illegal for somebody to be discriminated against or illegal for somebody to be excluded from a community. These are absolutely necessary if we're going to have a civilised society. So I, on that point, I completely agree with you. Uh, the challenge is, of course, that once you get somebody into a building, that's where your, that's where your legal obligation ends. So you can be in that building and nobody could care for you. Nobody loves you. Nobody particularly wants to relate to you. But you fulfilled your obligations. I think the, the, the big uh, uh, contribution that uh, church communities in particular have is to introduce alongside of that inclusion that, that, uh, uh, rhetoric, the idea of belonging. So in order to belong, you need to be missed. So somebody, somebody needs to be looking for you. You need to be a part of that. So that when you're not there, people come looking for you. This is, you know, it's like the prodigal son's father scanning the horizon, looking for him, like, in that sense. 
I think that kind of belonging sits with that with it, uh, that kind of uh, way of thinking about inclusion and belonging opens up space for religious communities to do something unique because actually that's not the way that society functions. But at the same time, you have that legal safeguard that makes sure that uh, 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 all communities, including church communities, fulfill their legal obligations. Um, so it's these two things, inclusion and belonging, that is the way that I would respond to, to you, you're quite right to, to push on that. Thank you, John. That's really helpful to think of these policies as really being the bare minimum. You know, they're our starting point. And so um, I, I appreciate the, the way that you frame that. Yeah. The policies also are, are means to love. So it's not like there's two different ways. They're all, they're all necessary for, to, to, for the process to work itself out. As a lawyer, I feel vindicated by... <laughs> well, probably you should do and that's just... <laughs> The good Lord can work that way out. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. So thanks, John. Uh, Madison's just asked, uh, you know, thinking about Madison's framework of um, legal structures which bring people in and then patterns of relationship and knowledge that uh, enable uh, people to be part of those communities. I'm wondering if there is a, a step past that again. Um, is it more than just relationship, but also a deep knowledge of the other, which um, go, goes past that surface level, which so often is is, is a difficulty in our Western churches anyway. Um, where, yeah, uh, you, know, you said that you've talked about the homogenous unit principle. We like to have people who are like us, uh, but is it even, even more of a challenge with uh, many people who might have an intellectual disability or um, even those who are non-neurotypical um, people on the autism spectrum, uh, for yeah. example, for whom uh, having a deep relationship is quite a challenge at times and having a deep relationship um, for other people with them can be a challenge. Uh, I'm wondering what, what lies beyond simply relationship? Uh, is there something about the knowledge that we have of one another um, and that sort of reflects something of the knowledge that God has of us as well. Um, is there a, a step beyond that um, from legal structures to, to re relationship in the church to something else? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question in some ways, but what I would say was we, we need to be careful about how, who's defining what a deep relationship is. And so if we are in relationship with somebody and constantly looking for something deeper and deeper and deeper, then we, we end up looking beyond people in, in the present towards something that we may want to aspire to. And I think the key thing would, for me would be to allow whomsoever you're having a relationship with to determine what a deep relationship is. And so if you're somebody with living with autism, then you should be the person that determines what a deep relationship is. And it shouldn't really be for, for you and I to speculate whether there's a third dimension. Uh, and that's not to say that there's not a third dimension, but it's simply that we need to be careful that we're not looking for the third dimension, um, uh, which means we, we miss the person in front of us. I mean, one of the things uh, that's always struck me about Luther's theology of the cross is that he says, you need to look at the cross. You need to see Jesus suffering. You can't keep constantly be looking beyond it towards ideas of heaven and ideas of escape. Look at the cross. Otherwise, you end up just missing actually where God is. And I would say something similar here. 
But I don't know the answer to your question as whether or not there's a, there's a third dimension, but I just would say that the process to get there is worthy of um, yeah, just being careful with it. Yeah, uh, th thanks. I, I think that, yeah, that's a really good caution there. Um, certainly, um, there, there have been books written about, you know, the place of disability in the church as as being a prophetic guide. And so therefore, you know, these are the things which we, they will do for us um, is right. the language uh, that is being used yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, um, which, um, and I think, I, yeah, and I think that's unwise because nobody would want to be like the, 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 the midway person, the kind of mediator for God, if you see somebody for something beyond yourself. We, I think the key thing in relation to disability is just something to realize that we give and we take, but it's like any other relationship. All of us have got good things to bring. All of us good good things to to receive. Um, and you know, people with disabilities just have very may have a different thing to bring, but it's not kind of mystical. It's just the way that human beings are when we bring our differences together. John, I know that at the heart of some of your work on disability and generally how we are to make sense of it as we you know go through our lives in the world, the concept of time has been at the heart of a lot of that work and particularly, you know, connecting with your ideas that you mentioned earlier about the prophetic, um, you know, uh, witness that um, that is offered to us, um, held out to us um, by people with disability a lot of the time. Can you unpack um, how time, um, what, how the concept of time and the concept of disabilities, what's the relationship between those two? Well, it, it, it depends. I mean, first of all, there's, there's, obviously there's no such thing as disabilities as just a generic category. So it depends who you're talking to and, and what you're talking about. But if you're thinking about, somebody, for example, people with advanced dementia or people with um, a profound intellectual disability, uh, then one of the first things that you begin to realise is that the speed of society, the time that society assumes to be normal, it's just impossible. So you know we use time like a, we use time. We're in a capitalist society, so we use time in the same way as we use our money. So you buy time, you lose time, you waste time. Everything you do with your money, you do with time. So time becomes a commodity, which means that uh, it becomes oppressive. So it means that we're always thinking about it. If you're, you're talking to somebody, you're always thinking about what you're going to do next and what the person you're going to move on to next. And so you're, it's very difficult to focus on the present because you're always looking for, uh, into the, the, what might happen in, in the future. Um, and that kind of uh, uh, way of thinking about time is oppressive for all of us, which is why there's so much anxiety and depression because we're, we're always under pressure to, to do something and to become something more. Whereas when you sit down with somebody with an profound intellectual disability or people with advanced dementia, you can't function in that kind of time. You have to slow down. You have to move at people's own time. And when you do that, you begin to realize that actually perhaps time uh, has a different kind of meaning. It's a meaning that's it's, it's to do with presence. It's to do with uh, uh, awareness of the other person. It's to do with it facilitating relationships without words in that way. And you, when, you, when, you, when you get into that situation, you begin to see that the way in which we think about time normally is probably quite a dangerous way. 
And I suspect that the way that God thinks about time is slow time. But culturally, we're, we're, we're fast time, but God thinks about time in slow time. Because in slow time, you can find the space to love. In fast time, it's quite difficult to find space and time for one another. And so I think that idea of rethinking or reimagining time in, uh, in the light of our experiences with people for whom time means something different opens up a whole new way of, of thinking about how we can be with one another. What does it mean for me to spend time with you, Steph, for example? I mean, what does that mean? Uh, does it just mean that we talk together or does it mean that we actually engage in a way that, that helps me to know you, you to know me? Um, and so that, that kind of basic way of thinking about time, I think, is, is helpful for, well, obviously for challenging our understanding of what time is, but also for uh, re rethinking the way that we need to be with one another in a situation of disability, but probably in every situation that we, we are in. And it seems that in a lot of your work as a practical theologian, that kind of phenomenological approach is at the heart of a lot of like the method. And I know I know I've heard you speak before on um I can't remember the name of the author of the Three Mile God. Um, oh yes. I, and I I love that. I love the way in which you know we, we take we pay attention to our lived experience and what's been revealed to us in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus and that illuminates so much about how we understand ourselves but also how we understand God. Can you explain yeah. to us, like as a practical theologian, how do, you, how do you, what's your craft like? How do, how do you approach that? Well, perhaps, the, perhaps giving you the examples maybe the, the, the easiest way to do that. I mean, as a practical theologian, my, 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 part of my task is to, to think about what uh, theology does as well as what theology means. So you have a doctrine of the Trinity, so what, right? Because so, if it only sits in your mantelpiece, it's like some, some, I mean, I often say some forms of theology like making clocks. You build this fantastic, intricate model of a clock and you put it on your mantelpiece and it just looks fantastic, but it doesn't tell the time. And, and so I'm kind of always wanting to know, oh, that's a clock, how do you tell it the time? Um, so, I see practical theology as, as constructive uh, uh, way of doing theology, uh, but it's also a way of listening to different ways of thinking about things. So earlier on, I spoke about the, my, my background in nursing. Right? So what my background in nursing did was give me a set of questions that I then brought into the academy and then asked of the tradition. Uh, questions that wouldn't normally have been asked of the tradition, but because of what I've been, I asked them of the tradition, and therefore it stretches our understanding of what the tradition looks like. For, uh, for, you know, it stretches our understanding of what it means to know God when you think about people who can't cognitively know God. So the practical theologian, one of the, the primary methodological things is to enable uh, uh, the questions that emerge from the life of the church to be put to the tradition and to listen to the way in which the tradition responds to that, and is changed by these questions. Now, I don't mean we, we have to become uh, unorthodox or heretics. I just mean that if you ask a different question about something, you'll see a different angle. It's like, it's like a diamond. If you look at the, a diamond for a different angle, you'll see it differently. It's always the same, but you'll see it differently. So that's why that's the way I think about the, the, the key task for a practical theologian to take these questions and in relation to disability is to take these questions that are raised by people living with disabilities and place them towards the tradition. 
There's the phenomenological dimension, I think, is, is actually important. Uh, the last book I wrote, um, well, more or less, um, it was looking at the spiritual lives of Christians who live with severe mental health challenges. So depression, bipolar disorder, and, and um, schizophrenia. And the approach there was a phenomenological approach in the sense that it meant putting to one side everything that you assume that you know about the phenomenon that you're looking at. So everything that you think you know about schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, depression, put it to one side and listen to people's stories. And when you do that, you begin to see really interesting things. So for example, that which is a symptom uh, in the eyes of the medical profession is a deep important experience for somebody going through that. So I thought something like hearing voices is not just a matter of it's a symptom that needs to be cured. It's actually somebody who's engaged with a whole um, sphere of social relationships with voices. And sometimes taking away these voices isn't necessarily the, the, the thing that they necessarily want in that sense. And um, so you, you, you begin to reframe the idea of, of voices as, as something that's meaningful. And not, to, not, to, not in opposition to the clinical, but just to suggest that there's, there's, there's more here than you may assume uh, under normal circumstances. And I think, again, that's what a practical theology should do. It should be put into one side your assumptions about what you think you should see and looking at the thing in and of itself. Uh, and that very often means listening to people's experiences and listening to people's narratives rather than listen to the assumptions about what you think they should be going through or, or feeling or experiencing. And I think that one of the one of the key kind of issues in which that comes to the fore in, in this space is around healing and resurrection hope. And I still remember that the first time I had that conversation <laughs> with you at my, it was at my parents' house at a dinner party by the staircase. And it was the first time in which um, I'd been operating under this unquestioned assumption that the resurrection hope would mean, you know, no disability. And I just remember you you asking asking the question. And I just wondered if if you could unpack some of the terrain around the, what are the, what are the kinds of issues that are at play in that conversation? Because I think that's one of the when people think about this question um, about disability, what you framed at the beginning as a problem to be fixed. Um, what are some of the other issues at play in that conversation? Well, if I can, if I, well, if I can just go with the, the idea of healing and the idea of resurrection, this is probably as good a way to get into that. So uh, the medical model <laughs> assumes that uh, healing is getting rid of something, right? But when you actually look at the gospels, there's, there's something else very often going on. So take, for example, the the woman with a discharge of blood, right? So she makes her way through the, the, the crowd, touches Jesus' robe, and immediately she no longer has this discharge of blood. Um, but then Jesus looks around, looks for her, uh, they have this conversation, and then at the end of that, Jesus says, uh, go, your faith has healed you. And you're thinking, well, how can that be? She's already been healed, but then you realize she's been cured, right? But she's this 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 affliction had been taken from her. This affliction was just important because it meant that she was alienated from community, from family, from friends, from the temple. So she was really very much a non-person uh, because she couldn't function in the way that uh, 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 persons could should do. By touching Jesus' robe, that was fixed. 
But what was interesting then is Jesus becomes a non-person. Jesus, who is God, becomes unclean and unable to contact God and alienated from society. So you kind of get like a strange prefiguration of the of the crucifixion in that, that story. But the point is that uh, healing in that situation meant that she worked out who Jesus was. And she was reconnected with a family, reconnected with, with a community, and ultimately, and importantly, reconnected with Jesus. Curing, which is good, everybody wants to be cured, was something different. So that distinction between healing and curing is something that within a highly medicalized culture like our own is very difficult to work out because you automatically assume healing is just getting rid of something, but actually it's much more complicated. And you can read that, I mean, you can read a lot of Jesus' miracles in a similar way, that they're theological, they tell you something about Jesus, who can forgive sins, Jesus can forgive them. Um, and then that does have some implications for the way in which we maybe think about um, heaven uh, and uh, the resurrection body, because when all, all of our talk about heaven and resurrection is speculative, the only thing I, I guess we, we know for, for certain is Paul says we will have a resurrection body, so we'll have something. But he says it will be transformed. He says all bodies will be transformed. He doesn't say that you know those bodies that have one or two broken bits or bodies that are slightly different will be transformed. He says all bodies will be transformed. So we have no real idea what the resurrection body will look like, whether it look like me, you, whatever it is. Like, but very often we speculate that. And that, that speculation is kind of very often tied up in, in the healing ministry where we want to get as close to the uh, perfection that we'll have eventually and all of its perfection later on. Um, but scripture doesn't really, this really pushes it in that direction. And so the question that disability theologians ask, both rhetorically and in, in reality, is will there be disabilities in heaven? Um, and the answer to that question is, Nobody knows. But when you look at the, um, <laughs> I mean, you talked about method, methodology a little bit earlier on. So rather than trying to answer that question, this is how it works within disability theologists. So people who have a congenital disability, so people who were born with, with a particular thing, that they have a very strong sense of, of their identity, that their identity is tied up in their disability will make a case very often for carrying that disability all over into heaven because they can't imagine themselves without it. Those with an acquired disability through accident or whatever it is, have a different vision. So the idea that they will carry that disability into heaven uh, is not the way that they, they want to, to frame or understand the particular situation. To be rid of that is what, they, what their vision of heaven is. Now, it could be that everybody's right. Um, we don't really know. But the important thing is that to some extent, your uh, vision of heaven determines how you, you respond to people in the present. And so if you're with somebody, for example, with a disability, and you're constantly trying to fix them, trying to, mend them, trying to push them into this heavenly vision of the way you think they are, then that just as a recipe for disaster and disrespect. Um, but if you have a more open understanding of heaven, which allows you just to love people and be with people as they are, uh, and for people to be able to formulate their own, to some extent, vision of what heaven looks like, because none of us really do know, then that, that I think, is a much more healthy and life-given way to, to think about the issue. I really like that you uh, sort of picked up on the example of the hemorrhaging woman, actually, because uh, Louise Gosbell, who we've got an episode with, um, not quite sure where it's going to appear in the schedule, but we've already spoken to her, yeah. so it's, it's all kind of in my mind. Uh, she was talking about that example as well. Oh, sure. um, 
in her recording so it's yeah, that'll be quite a nice um yeah. theme that gets picked up in a couple of episodes um and I guess partly sort of I'm thinking about where this series is going um I wonder if I can kind of step back and uh maybe finish with a slightly more macro view um would you give us a I don't know if it's a really mean question would you give us a bit of a sort of sketch of what you what your perception is of the trajectory within disability theology sort of since it's evolved and maybe where you think it's going next or sort of what the next iteration of it might be which I think would set us up really nicely for the episodes we've got to follow yeah, what a mean question. <laughs> <laughs> I made that caveat. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, disability theology is changing and has to change. So its roots are in disability studies, which is a, a mode of kind of social science uh, approach that really pushes into this and has developed this idea of, of the social model and is, is more of it to do with uh, uh, liberation, liberating people from oppressive structures. Uh, and a lot of the early disability theology uh, pushed into that and took that liberation, that liberation of the dynamic into liberation theology. So we're pushing for the rights of people with disability, quite right. Um, but a lot of that work's been done and you can't keep doing that again, over and over again. Otherwise we just end up saying the same thing. It may be an important thing to say over and over again. So what I see now is a movement within biblical studies and theology to incorporate disability into the standard ways in which we think about theology, particularly in relation to something like theological anthropology, what it means to be a, a human being. So instead of disability theology being a kind of um, uh, simply a, a mode of prophetic liberation of theology, people are beginning to say, well, maybe that's got something to do with understanding what church is, what human beings are, what it means to be a disciple. So in other words, uh, some of the more recent stuff uh, has begun to uh, uh, incorporate systematic theology, incorporate biblical studies, uh, incorporate, if you like, mainstream uh, uh, the, uh, uh, theological disciplines, which means that to some extent, it's beginning to stop being simply a specialist uh, way of thinking about things, and it's been more integrated into the mainstream way in which people are thinking about it. I mean, there's a long way to go, but I think that's, that's the right way to go. So we've established that the, the, uh, there's a great injustice towards people with disabilities and that the church is implicit within that. We've established a series of practices that need to be engaged in to, to overcome that. The next stage is probably how do we persuade the academy and those who are going to be teaching and preaching in the future to take this as not something that you do because it's uh, on the occasion when it's Disability Sunday, but it's actually something that you do as central to the way that you think about your, your work and ministry. Well, Professor Swinton, thank you so much for joining us. We've really appreciated this conversation and we're excited to uh, chat with you again further in a couple of weeks uh, about dementia and hear more of your thoughts on that. So thanks so much for, for your time and for no uh, being a part of this series. Nice to meet you.